Welcome to episode 440 with my guest, Aaron Woodall. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp.com. If you've never tried online counseling, uh, I really recommend checking out, especially if you live in the boonies uh, or you don't like having to leave your house to, to go to therapy. I've been doing it for a couple of years and uh, love my BetterHelp.com counselor, Donna. She's awesome. She's helped me work through a lot of issues and continues to. Uh, so if you're interested in checking it out, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is a good fit for you. And you need to be over 18. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This here is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions past traumas and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. I'm a former stand-up comedian, TV host, jackass. Uh, It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the social media handle. You can follow, uh, follow us at and this is a from the vaults, an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself TR. And uh, he writes, I was a musician. Playing cello was my only passion, and I was good. My college professor said I was the best cellist who ever went to that college. Then I had an accident, not car accident, but I'd rather not get more specific because it's a story I'm sick of telling. I lost one finger the use of another finger, and have scarring on another that causes constant pain. This was my left hand, so I could no longer play cello or any of the instruments I had learned. One day, when I was still sensitive about my hand, a little boy walked up to me and asked why my hand was messed up. His mother was right behind him, and she looked horrified. I looked the young man in the eyes, and I said my finger fell off because I didn't eat my vegetables. His mom hugged me and whispered into my ear, thank you. Uh, some some sad news. Um, we had to put Ivy down uh, about five days ago. Um, it was when I was recording last week's episode, um, it, I knew that I was going to have to do it in a couple of days, but I didn't. I didn't really feel like talking about it. it, it I, honestly, w- what's worse than having to put an animal down is the time between knowing you're going to have to put them down and putting them down. And, and there's something that feels so um, I don't know wrong about well Sunday three o'clock, but. I am lucky enough that I and my ex that we could afford to do at at her home and have the vet come because Ivy was terrified of going to the vet. And it was surprisingly peaceful and beautiful and, of course, sad. But um, one of the things that I've tried to focus on since then is just all the things that were awesome about Ivy. She was, I got her, or we got her, my ex and I, when she was eight weeks old. She came to stay with us uh, 
in November of 2003. And she was, we found her on a site that was a rescue place, a no-kill shelter for dogs. And she had been found with her whole litter and she had gotten a viral infection, which had weakened her and made her the runt of the litter. So then her litter had also attacked her. And so she had some wounds on her and she just looked and she had these big, her coloring when she was a, was a puppy was she just had these big, dark raccoon eyes and she was so filled with love of people that they nicknamed her Lovey while they were waiting to adopt her because she was so sick that she would go in and out of consciousness because of this viral infection and having been attacked by her litter that when the doctor or the vet would try to do something, she would come out of unconsciousness and just try to kiss everybody. And so when we read that about her, and like 60 people applied to adopt her, and I just remember waiting, just my ex and I just praying that we would be the ones that would get to adopt her, and we were so happy. And when we when we went to meet her the first time, the the person brought her out, and they were holding her, and she weighed all of, you know, probably four pounds at that time. And as soon as she came through the door, we were probably 20 yards away still. She was just wiggling the entire time and kissing, just kissing the air, just kissing the air, waiting until she got to us. And they they said, you know, you should know that she is bossy and she is going to be bossy. And she was, she definitely was, but she was so affectionate. And those first couple of months, she and I spent so much time together. I was newly sober, and we went everywhere together. And when we would take naps in the afternoon, and she only did this for maybe the first six months, when we would take naps, I would lay on my back, and then she would lay her neck across my neck, and we would take naps. And it was just the best feeling in the world when I would be in my recliner at night, she would always curl up uh, between my between my legs. Um, my favorite memories are when she was really shy about playing when she first started going to the dog park. And then one day she just started mixing it up with other dogs. And this is when I realized that she must have some boxer in her because when she would wrestle with other dogs, she would get up on her hind legs and she would use her front paws like, uh, I don't know, almost like the karate kid. Like, like, you know, she would wave her front arms around. And it was so much fun seeing her mix it up. Gracie, my new dog, is is uh, rolling around on the bed right now. Just some favorite memories I have of of Ivy is that she was always surprised by her farts and her diarrhea, and so when it would, when a noise or diarrhea would come out, she would be surprised by it, and she would try to turn around and see what it was coming out the back of her, and she would just spin, and it was like a sprinkler of diarrhea. 
she loved to be the center of attention. When, whenever my ex and I used to joke that when people would come over, Ivy believed that everybody was coming over to see her. But, uh, it's not too far off because if there was a group of us sitting watching a movie or something, she would go and stand right in front of the TV to <laughs> steal, steal focus. If, if, you know, another dog was being petted by somebody, she would just push the other dog out of the way and put herself right, right in their place. Um, she barked a lot and it used to annoy me. And then when my ex and I split up and I spent my first night out of the house, it was such a sad quiet. And I realized how much I missed her annoying bark because if you got up from a chair, both she and Herbert, the other, the other dog we used to have, they would both bark like an intruder was coming in. Um, and at first, you know, when the, when the vet told us that, that she had a large tumor on her liver and it was, and it was terminal, um, my first instinct, of course, was to make it about me. How could I blame myself? My first thought was, oh, well, once I adopted Gracie, she got jealous and the jealousy gave her cancer. <laughs> and of course, I saw how ridiculous that was and that's my way of just trying to control things and uh it was i cried a lot during the event of us putting her to sleep but we put her in her little bed her favorite bed right by the the sliding door window and we just petted her and kissed her and it was it was really, it was kind of beautiful. And my, my ex has a good sense of humor. And she said, you know, Ivy was so dramatic and such a diva. We should really, after she's gone, uh, we should play New Orleans funeral music. And so when we took her body out to the vet's car, <laughs> we played the music and it made us laugh. And ultimately, I think that's what I want. When, when something painful happens is to not ignore the pain, feel the pain and cry and all that stuff, but to not obsess about the negative stuff, to also think about the, the positive things. And it's been, I think it was so much easier for me because uh, compared to when Herbert died, because when Herbert died, it was sudden and I was out of the country when it happened. And it took me about two years to even be able to look at a picture of Herbert. And I don't feel that same way at all about Ivy. And if Ivy knew that, she would be very upset. <laughs> so so don't, don't tell her. Anyway, today's episode is sponsored by the Calm app. Uh, getting enough sleep, getting enough relaxation and dealing with stress is hugely important to our mental and physical health. And the Calm app is a really great way to integrate that into your life. They have a whole library of programs designed to help you get the sleep that your brain and your body need. They have soundscapes and a hundred different sleep stories narrated by awesome voices like uh, Jerome Flynn, one of the guys from uh, Game of Thrones, Stephen Fry, love his voice. And so if you, uh, if you want to, you want to feel healthier and more rested, deal with your stress, check out 
Calm. Uh, and right now, you guys get 25% off Calm Premium subscription at calm.com slash mental. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash mental. 40 million people have downloaded the Calm app and find out why at calm.com slash mental. And then this is a, uh, another awfulsome moment from the, from the vaults. Uh, for those of you that are new listeners, we have about a dozen different surveys that people fill out anonymously. And awfulsome moments is, is one of my favorites to read. They're moments from, uh, the past that were kind of awful and kind of awesome at the same time. And this one, I forget the name of the person who filled this out because I didn't print that page out. But from what I remember, it was, um, it was a young woman. I think she was uh, in her late teens or early 20s. And she writes, This happened while I was in the loony bin. It was my second night. I hadn't spoken to any therapist. I hadn't slept for those two days. No shower, no nothing. I was beached on a chaise, basking in a nice mix of humiliation and depression. And an old man with a walker slowly made his way to sit on the couch. About an hour later, a nurse popped out and went to talk to the old man. I caught bits and pieces of the conversation while lost in my own fog. He was diabetic, and I believe he had Alzheimer's. Five minutes later, I heard the old man begin to scream, I ain't eating no fucking tapioca pudding. You're diabetic. You need to keep your blood sugar stable. You know that you either need to eat a snack or we'll give you an IV. I'll take that fucking IV and jam it up your fucking pee hole. Okay. Is this your choice? You want to fight with us to keep you healthy? No. And your little midget minions are doing the work of the devil. I'll stick my dick in the pudding and you can eat it. She sat there for a minute, holding the pudding. She opened the lid and ran the pudding lid under his nose, allowing him to smell it. He sat there, then he stood up. By George, that's butterscotch. He took the pudding and began to pour it into his mouth. The nurse walked away and the staff were doing their best to hold in laughter. Meanwhile, all us patients were in hysterics. Another woman, who appeared to be the same age, came to sit next to him. She leaned close and quietly spoke in his ear. Ezra, do you really need to make a scene every time? Yes, I do. If I don't, I don't get the butterscotch. Nobody's, Nobody's cool, cool and everyone's scared. scared. And, and we're just, just all, all in this together. <laughs> There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a saga of hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I want out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm gonna stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different that i don't want to die is a miracle to be weird i'm so happy to be here i'm gonna help you one day people are gonna love you for that it takes a lot of work to heal it's hard being a weird kid sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it you will just never see what you're not looking for i didn't know how to break up with him so i just transferred schools <laughs> i'm here with aaron woodall uh who is a comic and you do a podcast with a former guest, Jessa Reed, called Mormon and the Meth Head. And uh, you and I talked earlier, and we recorded something, but we wanted to re-record it because one of the people that we talked, that you talked about in it, uh, 
um, you and I decided that it would be best if we didn't identify that person by name, rather just refer to them as a female relative. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I got I got nervous. I got scared. So much time has passed since then, though. I feel like I'm going to come back here just say the exact same stuff that yes. I said last time. It's... But uh, I did. This whole thing has been new for me, and I've gone through different phases in a short period of time. And I got really scared at one point where I was like, I shouldn't be talking about all this as openly as I'm talking about it. And uh, I'm feeling a little bit more relaxed right now. So I think, yeah, we'll take two. We'll try again. Yeah, we'll try again. Thanks for saying comic with a question mark, by the way. Yes. You're like, you're a comic? If that's what you call it, I, I guess. I, no, I, I thought could. that I've, I guess some people laugh. I don't know. Uh, I've never, I've never seen your stand up. And I thought I remembered that you and I remember Jess is a stand up. That's how I, I found her to be a guest on the podcast. But I couldn't, my memory's so shitty. I couldn't remember if you were uh -huh. also a comic. Yeah, uh, we're both comedians and uh, both uh, in recovery. She's in recovery from uh, meth and I am in recovery from Mormonism. And that's where the name of our podcast comes from. Uh, we've both quit our uh, addictions, I guess. Mm -hmm. And And you're how old? Jeez, how old? 32. I am 32. 32. Um Where's a good place to start with your uh, with your story? Oh, let's go all the way back to 2012, 11. I'm not sure exactly when, but I know that I'm at I'm a I'm a young married man. I'm attending Brigham Young University. I'm married, and uh, my brother is at my apartment, and he's he's visiting or something. I think at the time he lived nearby. And he was just hanging out at my house, and we were talking. And uh, and kids at this point? No, okay. that's that's how I know it's not 2003. I feel like it's 2011. I'm not. Okay. I'm not totally sure. I do have one son currently, but he wasn't born until uh, January 8th, 2013. Okay. But so me and my brother, we love each other and we fight. I feel like most of the the big uh, moments in this story happen on the heels of a fight that we're having. Uh, that's they, How close in age are you guys? We're three years apart. Who's older? Uh, I am. Okay. I'm the middle child and uh, we uh, and then he's the, he's the baby, right? And I mean, I remember him being happy once upon a time, but for the most part, like, I don't know, something happened around, uh, I don't know, he got, he just got mean and just angry at everyone and everything all the time. And you're just kind of a jerk, kind of a dick always and hard to deal with and just huge temper, all these things. And... I think I was that's what the fight was about this particular night and I was uh being awful myself and I was saying things with such surety and such confidence I said what's what so bad has happened to you man like what tragedy in your life has made you be this awful and angry to everyone and I thought that would shut him up. I thought it would teach mm -hmm. him to act right, to stop being uh, such a grouch all the time. And instead, uh, he started crying. And it's the 
Um, I think at that time it was probably the first time I had ever seen him cry, and he did it. He I remember vividly how hard he was trying not to cry. And I remember he clenched his fists, and he well, like every muscle in his body was clenched. He was just like, and he was just kind of shaking because he was flexing every muscle so hard, and and tears were just like welling up in his eyes and coming down his face, and he's just shaking. And uh, that's when I doubled down and I said, no, I, I realized immediately that I, uh, something. That's was, when everybody jumped out and said, surprise. <laughs> We're all the awful things that happened. Uh, what, but no, I knew right away that like I was missing some part of the story. And uh, so he told me that night that he had been molested by our female relative when uh, he was a kid and he told me the whole story he spoke in like excellent detail he remembered all of it and had kept it to himself his entire life since he was like five mm -hmm. so um, he had lived a, a long time with this secret and suddenly everything clicked everything made sense where I was like, uh, oh, yeah, this would make someone behave the way that you've been behaving uh, for as long as I can remember, you know? Yeah. Of course you would be have, a, have temper issues. Of course you would be mean to people. It makes perfect sense. Uh, even like uh, the person that he hated the most and was the worst to was this female relative. He was always... Uh, and I'll just say it's not our mom. <laughs> yeah. um, and he, I asked him who. I was like, who did it to you? Because he told me he was molested. That was the first thing he said. Well, who did it? And he said, think, Aaron. And I was like, what? Who? Who could it be? And I'm going through uncles mm -hmm. in my head. Like, this It's a sad it's a Rolodex to flip through of, like, your uh, family relations you think could have molested someone. You're like, who could it be? Could it be that weird uncle? Is there a yeah. potential molester Mormon website that you can go through <laughs> and you can filter it by? Uh, yeah, I think it's called Ancestry.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, he said, who do I, who do I hate? And that's when it clicked. And I was like, oh, my God. If that, like, that makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. Of that, ex I, can, I can think of the times I chastised him where I would see him, like, just take shots at her or go off on her mm -hmm. out of nowhere. And I would be like, dude, what's the matter with you? Can you be nice? Mm -hmm. Can you be nice for, while we go to Texas Roadhouse just for <laughs> once? Can you please be civil? And suddenly I'm like, oh, yeah, well, if that person uh, molested me and I had to share a minivan with them for the rest of uh, my childhood, mm -hmm. I would be uh, kind of mean to them. I would uh, not tolerate any shit from them whatsoever. So every, all of this behavior like makes sense. All of the ways that he acts makes sense. All of his depression and anger and everything just makes sense. So, uh, and how long did it go on for? He said it only happened two times. Okay. Just two instances, but then, uh, it was a secret, you know? Right. And she which, which is not to minimize it. I mean, it's, no. it's not how many times. Right. That, that I think that something like the, 
the more damaging parts of the story for me is how, uh, like, he explained how she uh, afterwards, like, told him, uh, okay, well, this was bad what we did, so we need to repent of it. Mm-hmm. And so they would they said a prayer and like in I'm Mormon primary they teach you about repentance they teach you the steps of repentance you got to feel sorry for it you got to say a prayer you got to ask for forgiveness ask for the atonement to heal you uh, make restitution where you can and never do it again and uh, so she's like telling those lessons to him and saying like okay well we should pray about this now and ask for forgiveness and now that we've asked for forgiveness and it's over uh, we should never talk about it again like we now now we're it's over so we don't ever have to talk about this again and I think that really was a mind fuck to him uh, for the rest of his life because he still felt dirty he didn't feel clean he didn't feel like the atonement worked at all mm-hmm. and um, he and I got into several disputes as we got older about the religion I was super Mormon I loved it I was the most Mormon and I was all about it and he he wasn't he didn't want to go on a mission you know Mormon missionaries mm-hmm. on the uh, on the white shirts and bikes yep. that was me he didn't want to do one well how much are those guys worth in Grand Theft Auto do you get points for clipping them in Grand Theft Auto? I, if they I've, if they don't, I mean, why wouldn't Grand Theft Auto? Uh, you 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 can uh, assault just about anybody else in Grand Theft Auto. So and you I, get I, points I, for assaulting people. Oh Listen, yeah, I wasn't allowed to play these violent video oh, games. Yeah, you heathens did. I was I was barely allowed yes. to play Tony Hawk Pro Skater. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I never got around to Grand yeah. Theft Auto. I, pl- I played it once for about five minutes, and the only reason I didn't continue playing is the the, the controls were just kind of unwieldy, and so I didn't like. Oh, uh, it wasn't. It, was it. Not, nothing to do with the no, terrible violence you were inflicted on innocent. Not at all. No missionaries. No, I have a dark sense of humor. So. Just the controls. As long as nobody Paul. is being hurt in reality, I'm totally down with. Uh, okay. Something that's dark and fucked up. <laughs> anyway, uh, he he um. Our uh, our uh, family was very religious, and I think he saw hypocrisy every time he went to church. Oh, that'll make say, you mad. He would say, she gets uh, praised and seen as a good person when I know she's not a good person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, I get cast as the bad person because I'm not happy and I don't want to be here and I fight my parents on coming here. And uh, But I, uh, uh, you know... She's the really bad person. I think he also still felt dirty after that. Like, you know, what she said is like, you know, now we're we're clean. We're we've mm-hmm. repented and it's over. And I think he carried that with him for a long time. I think uh, also for for men in particular, uh, you know, if there's a physical response during it, it can convince you that you are a monster. That's what I felt for years uh because it I got aroused one time and and I for forty years was just like oh I must have you know asked en- for enjoyed it. it. Yeah. yeah. I must have enjoyed it. And um I don't know if that was at play with him, but it's it can you know, and, and sometimes uh, women will orgasm if when they're being assaulted. Uh you know, so it's like there's so much stuff. If your brain is going to turn on you and get mean to you, if you've been assaulted, 
there are so many things it can use to just tell you you're making too big of a deal or you wanted it or et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. it makes the healing so fucking difficult. Yeah. But sorry, I cut you off. No, it's okay. Well, then I think also he just lived with it forever and never told anyone. So this was a big deal that he finally told me. And uh, I told uh, our dad and then he talked to our dad and like like Mm -hmm. both our parents knew and stuff. And I was... I was still so naive and I was like, oh, so excited for our family. Our family's going to heal. Now that the secret's out in the open, we're just going to all talk about it and we'll just get to the bottom of it and everyone's going to feel better. And that is not how it happened. Uh, it, uh, people were very hesitant and, um, my brother didn't appreciate the reaction that uh, my parents gave initially, and I didn't either. But I wasn't as like offended by it as as he was. Uh, you know, it's a lot worse when you're in his shoes. Yeah. And he thinks, I oh, I finally told this secret. He wanted everyone to just rally to his side. Yeah. And the parents have a a tough uh, choice there. They don't want to. Uh, it's hard to believe that. Uh, you it's you know kids you raised could do that and you you want to try to explain it so i think some of the very first words out of my parents mouths were like are you sure man Mm -hmm. like uh or maybe it's not the way that you remember it maybe you're remembering it wrong and uh that's all it took for him to shut down and not talk about it for a couple more years you know that was really uh hurtful to him he was just he it took him they just but they didn't know they had no idea what it's like to hold something like that in for so long and finally tell someone and uh so i kind of took it my role to be his champion and i was going to be 100 percent on his side and i had gone from being the guy who had said like hey man could you be nicer could you be nicer to him that night i said fuck her you never have to see her again you never have to talk to her we won't talk to her nothing she's done she's cut out fuck her forever and that's kind of like the position Mm -hmm. that i took and i also was kind of like a mediator for the family for a year or so where I had to like uh, take in all of his uh, emotions because he wasn't going to talk to anyone but me. And then I would have to try to help my parents understand where he was coming from and help them understand like you're never going to have all your kids at Christmas again. So stop it. Cause like even like nothing changed after he first said something. It took years for my parents to change. They still wanted all of us to be together. And, uh, he saw that as a huge insult where he's saying like, you're, you're inviting my abuser, the person I hate and fear most in this world, uh, to come home for Christmas, which means, uh, I don't get to have Christmas. I'm not going to come home. Right. Uh, because that's that's awful for me. So you're picking her over me when you do that. And they didn't see it that way. They felt bad that you know uh, she couldn't come home. And I said, who gives a shit? Uh, you know, uh, I, I don't care. And so we we kind of uh, fought for a while as a family. And I got pretty depressed. I for the rest of the time I was at BYU. I was really deeply clinically depressed. My last couple of years, it took me so long to graduate because I just kept taking fewer and fewer credits every semester mm-hmm. and then still 
failing those credits. Like every every semester, I'll be like, you know what the solution is? I'll take fewer classes. So maybe I won't be a full-time student. I'll be three-quarter time. And I bet, like, you know, I'll have enough energy to at least pass those classes. And then that failed. And I was like, you know what I'll do? I'll be a half-time student. You sure. Know? You were tapering then, down on your dreams. Right. Yeah. And then, uh, but... You don't want the jolt of just giving your <laughs> dreams up right away. You got to, just like a psych med, you just got to slowly wean yourself off it. Oh, uh, I was... Uh... I was going through old emails. I found something, and it took me back to my college days. And I saw things where I was like writing to professors about, "Hey, thanks for that extension. Thank you. Uh, sorry that I am uh, failing. Thank you know. Sorry that this is so late. That's all I was doing. I just I was staying awake all night long, doing nothing, and then just just going to the computer labs where I was supposed to do homework and just doing nothing, just staring at the computer and just doing nothing. And I was miserable and it was really deteriorating my marriage. Everything was getting really bad. And I knew that it was connected to the family stuff. It mm-hmm. all started as soon as he told me about it. But in my mind, I felt like that all makes sense because uh, I'm dealing with a whole bunch of Family stuff. I felt like I had to be this sponge that soaked up all of his hate and anger. Mm -hmm. It was really hard. I remember when um, she moved to Provo, Utah, which is where we were living, Mm -hmm. me and him. It's where BYU is. And, like, she had just gotten a job offer at BYU. And so she was going to come. And he lost it. He... uh, stopped sleeping and then started like stayed awake so long he started seeing things and he was calling me and telling me about like how paranoid he was and uh just like how he was losing it and it was really hard for me because he was starting to be happy he had moved Mm -hmm. after he had told me he had moved down near me and he had like made new friends he had quit uh i guess he was still kind of going to church and stuff but like he was happier and now this is this thing and I had many conversations with him that were, uh, they took a toll. They took a toll. He yeah. told me about, um, you know, like how he, he had a plan to kill her. He was telling me now when I tell this story, I just want everyone to keep in mind. It's the worst fucking plan I have ever heard. Like this isn't a realistic plan that he was ever going to get away. Right. Like, it was a fantasy in his head to release, to release the pain exactly. and the anger. Right. Exactly. I only say this because I was seeing a therapist from BYU. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like a church therapist or whatever. And I'll never, I never went back to him uh, after. I think I had a few sessions with him. And I told him about this event that happened. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, hey. Uh, I think he like called me later or something and he was like, Hey, I've been thinking about what you said about your brother. And I think that I have to report it to the police. And I said, Oh no, 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 no. You don't need to report that to the police. That's ridiculous. Um, that's, that's unnecessary. And he's like, well, I think that I have to, it's just as my job and stuff. And, and I was like, I get that. Can I, uh, he, can I talk to him? Like, are you going to call the police? Like, mm-hmm. can I go, like, talk to him first? So like, he doesn't know that I told you this, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I assume that your brother was comfortable with you talking about this on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I talk about it on my podcast, too. Um, I wish he was more comfortable talk- with me talking about it with him, because we still don't talk yeah. about it that much, which is a bummer. But uh, he's okay. 
I don't think it's his favorite thing, but I think that he uh, uh, trusts me, and I think that he's uh, happy with other people getting help. So, but uh, then that therapist went back on his promise. He didn't even let me talk to my brother. He just called the cops, and then my brother just like out of nowhere gets like the cops at his apartment asking him questions and stuff, and that just infuriated me because I'm like. No cops have gone to her apartment yet. Mm-hmm. And fuck her. Like, how, like, this guy is the victim here. And, uh, now I've brought more, uh, trouble on him and stuff. And I just, I got so mad. I started getting angrier and angrier at her. I remember trying to talk to her about, like, when she was finding a place to live. I said, don't live anywhere near him. And she said, uh, I'll live wherever I want to live. She had this whole victim mentality. Like she was the one that's being wronged so much and like, oh, I can't, uh, I finally have this good job break. You know, I think she graduated college when, when the recession happened and she spent a long time like living at home and was happy to finally have a job or something. And I, uh, remember having a huge fight with her where she said, uh, I know without a shadow of a doubt, it's very Mormon language. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, God wants me to move here. And I said, if that's true, fuck God. That's a terrible God. I can't, I would not believe in a God who uh, prioritizes your uh, fucking three-quarter time position that doesn't give you health benefits over the the well-being of this victim that's never that you know like is trying to just get away and restart his life so uh i had said in no uncertain terms you're you're a self-righteous bitch for for continuing that line of discourse so yes. don't don't ever say that to me again i that you're you're here because god wants you to be here and you're here because you're selfish when people play the god card in a way that is narcissistic it's woo. Right. It's, I did it. I, I get it. Like there's a, uh, a, a song from the Book of Mormon musical that really just encapsulates this. It's narcissistic, but you disguise it in humility. Mm-hmm. This, uh, this, uh, thought of like, uh, God has picked me. Mm-hmm. This humble, like lowly me picked me for this important mission to go, uh, teach other people the gospel. You know, that's how I, I thought as a missionary, I was very humble, but in truth, I, I believed that at, uh, 20 years old, I had all of the answers right. to all of life's questions. There's nothing humble about that. I believed that I knew the only way to save people. And I tried to convince other people to listen to my, uh, esteemed knowledge that I had gained in my 20 years of existence on this planet. Oh, which people yeah. love hearing from a voice that's cracking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh! Oh! These callow youth. <sighs> anyway, I got very upset, and I just... All my depression made sense. And it tore apart my marriage. Uh, and my my wife got very unhappy, and then, uh, this is years later, uh, she tells me that she's leaving and that was, a that brought my world down. You know, that was terrible. But after she left, uh, I had another fight with my brother. <laughs> this time we're at, we're at my, our parents' house we're in the basement. It's late at night. I had come home from the comedy club 
and uh, he was downstairs watching TV, and he said something about my wife that uh, um, was dumb. That I was just mad every. I, I so the thing was I was not handling my divorce well, but I was convinced that I was like, and that like no one was giving me the respect that I deserved. You know, everyone you get to when every, all anyone said to me was like, "That's not healthy, Aaron." That's not healthy. That's not healthy. And I'm like, no shit. But do you understand that everything I want to do right now is unhealthy? Right. Like, uh, when your first instinct is to lie on a pile of clothes that she left behind and set yourself on fire, <laughs> suddenly sending friend requests to the guy she's been on dates with. Is it that bad? <laughs> so people are like, Aaron, Aaron, you're, I would, the thing was, I, I'm a comedian. So I just made it, I would just make all these Facebook uh, jokes. Like I would make all these funny posts that I thought were hilarious. Which, you, event, which eventually becomes a cry for help to other people. I think it start like people right away. Like the first thing I posted was, you know, you do a life event on Facebook. Mm -hmm. you know, and I just said, began sharp downward spiral. Just day one. And I said that, and like that's, Took me off on a, a year-long journey of hilarious Facebook posts, which you, Paul, with your dark sense of humor, probably would have loved. Yeah. But there's a bunch of just ugh, Debbie Downers out there yeah. who uh, took everything way too seriously. And I was complaining, I think, about a post that people were taking seriously. And I wanted sympathy from my brother. I wanted him to be like, yeah, those people were dumb. But he was like... How are they supposed to know that you're not serious, man? And that's all he said. But that got me so which, mad. Which was true. Yeah, I was so mad. Sure, it's true. Maybe. I still think, ugh, the people are idiots. It's funny. Well, not funny, but it's interesting because in many ways, it's kind of similar to the therapist who reported your brother. Because the last thing they want is to say, I should have seen the signs. So we kind of hedge our bets in saying, is this serious? Do you need to talk? You know, what, which is certainly better mm -hmm. than always assuming that somebody's just fucking around. Right. There's times though I did, I know at least one time on Facebook where I said, I said, unlike all my usual posts, which are hilarious, this is a, a literal cry for help. I'm lonely. I could use some nice messages. If you have any nice stories about me that would make me feel good about myself, please send them. And like I got – that was like great, you know? I tried to explain. The problem is like I don't want to be Facebook friends with people that don't know me. And like social media, you – it's too easy to have a, a hundred or a thousand friends that don't – aren't sure. super familiar with you. And I, my thing was like, if anyone really knew me, they would know that this is a joke. Right. And I, I felt like I would, exp I told them like that if you're, if I'm making jokes on Facebook, mm -hmm. that's not the time to worry about me. That's like how I cope as a comic. Like I, I take pain and I want to turn it into a laugh. If I can turn that into likes, that feels better. If I can, uh, if something bad happened with my ex and she made me cry that day on the phone, if I can turn that into a joke, it takes the power away from that painful memory and turns it into something funny. It changes the narrative. That's what I like. The time to worry about me is when I'm not posting anything. If I'm radio silent, that means I am trapped in my uh, apartment, pacing back and forth, and I haven't eaten in a while. Picking, which, out, picking out clothes to make the pile to love yeah. yourself. <laughs> 
Do you mix lights and darks when you make oh, the yeah. clothes you, pile? When you're, when you're lighting it on fire, it doesn't matter. You just pick your favorite <gasps> ones. Oh, the my best. God. Dirty clothes and with clean clothes? Dude, they're all, they're all dirty clothes. Oh, they belong to her. Aaron. They're all dirty clothes. They're not, they're not my clothes, Paul. They're the clothes that she left behind. Ugh. I did so many sad, sad, depressing things. It's funny to me that people were worried about the Facebook posts. Like, if you knew, if you saw what was going on. Give, but it give was, us some of the crazy. If you can remember any. I mean, it was... Um, so it was just, it was a complete shock to me when she left, and it was really hard. And I uh, uh, don't think she left in the nicest way. And it was rough. And it just brought my whole world down, and I just didn't know who I was anymore. I had a, a really codependent relationship with her, and I didn't think that I even existed anymore as an individual person. Mm. And so uh, I was kind of like a zombie. I was in a fugue state. Did you feel like a failure as a Mormon? We quit Mormonism, uh, and that's that was part of the existential crisis. But it was that was more like it added to the I don't know who I am. Right, so all the things that you had used to define yourself were mm -hmm. slowly falling away. So I didn't feel like a failure as a Mormon. I felt tricked by Mormonism, you know. I had other friends who went through divorces while still religious and they were able to turn to the church as a source of strength. They're mm -hmm. like you know, they could immerse themselves in scripture study and in the atonement and go to church and all this stuff and have the community there and really like strengthen themselves as a child of God. And I didn't have any of that. So I felt moreless. Like I felt right. uh, like I'm just adrift at sea and I have nothing to hold on to. And I have to refigure re out my entire life. Like leaving Mormonism was going to be hard, but I thought we were going to do it together. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as she was like, you don't believe anymore? And I was like, I don't. She's like, you don't think we're married for time and all eternity and sealed by uh, God's priesthood? And I was like, no, I don't think that. And she's like, okay, good. Because <laughs> I have been meaning to divorce you. And I was like, what? Oh, my God. But like, my dad had always said, like, and the whole church will tell you, you know, they, they scare you. They say, if you ever turn your back on the fullness of the gospel, your life will fall apart. And then that's what happened. And I was like, damn it. God, damn it. Literally, damn it. But, uh, I mean, I, I remember, I mean, I thought about suicide a lot, a lot, a lot. It was, it permeated my brain almost all the time. I, uh, was constantly watching movies just to like have s something else playing in my brain because the second I didn't have something playing, the only thing that was playing was just how to kill myself. How can I do it? Where can I do it? What would it be like if I did it here? How can what I do it? What would the ramifications be? And I didn't care so much about style. My problem is I'm so anxious and so worried about what other people think that uh, I have to like, I couldn't, I could never impulsively kill myself because as soon as I was about to, I'd be like, okay, well, first, I guess I should leave a note for so and so. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to do that, oh, I should they're probably on vacation. Call. I can't ruin their vacation. Yeah, that would be rude. Uh, oh, man. I think about everyone else. And that's the, if I could, uh, that's going to sound like I'm glorifying suicide too much, so I won't go there. But uh, anyway, it was dark, man. I remember uh, falling asleep with like uh, like this big kitchen knife in my hand, just on my couch. I fell asleep because I was just holding it until I fell asleep. Falling asleep was, was, was 
hard. I never had trouble with that ever in my life. Mm. And I couldn't because there's that, no matter how quickly you fall asleep, there's a moment where you're alone with your thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. And in that moment, like is when all that depression would just pounce on me mm -hmm. and I couldn't take it. And so I would, I would try to stay awake until I passed out and I would just have headphones in and just be watching something until I passed out to try to skip that. But then you know what would happen? I would wake up in the morning and I would just start crying. Have you ever just started your day off crying? Like in an instant start, I would wake up and it was like that depression that had been waiting to pounce last night was still just at the foot of my bed waiting. And wow, the second I wake intense, up, man. it would yeah. jump on me and I would just start, I would start crying. So things uh, were bad. And anyway, I had this, I had this fight with my brother and it was great. It was one of those great brother fights where we were like, we got tested with each other. And I said something about like, uh, I'll, I'll kick your ass. And then I walked up the stairs and he s said one more thing. And I was like, here it comes, baby. And I just like came running down the stairs, like a wrestler on SmackDown, like running yeah. out to the ring. Like my intro music was playing and, uh, like he hears me come storming down the stairs. So he jumps up out of the recliner and like the, so he's like already standing up with his, with his hands up when I get down there and we just start swinging on each other, just hmm, punch, trying to punch each other as hard as we can. It's a real, uh, real good fight. And you know, I'm not even mad at him. Like I'm just, right. I just got a lot of anger at my feeling. So my parents, of course, wake up and, uh, come running downstairs, uh, in, in their, uh, Mormon temple garments and CPAP machines. <laughs> like my dad still had a CPAP mask on his face and he's just in his okay. temple garments. And so now it's a whole family ordeal, right? Yeah. And in, the middle of this fight, like we and all, you, and do you go tag team your your <laughs> yeah, your mom like, and your brother against you and your dad? No, they just split. They split it up. Oh man, I remember uh, my like they they got in they got in between us and stuff. And uh, first thing my mom said was like, "You you can you can go like you you can get out of the house if you're gonna be like this." And I called her bluff immediately, and I was like, "Okay." I'll just leave. I'll grab the grandbaby and we will go. And she, they were like, no, 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 we didn't mean that. We didn't mean that. Uh, but we like, we start pulling out lots of old family things. And my brother takes this opportunity to talk about like the anger he has for our parents and how they haven't, uh, you know, supported him. Yeah. Supported him during this and something that what he says, uh, triggers something in me and I collapsed to the ground and started crying. And I knew in that moment that I had also been molested by this same relative. And like the first, when he first told me and things clicked suddenly, uh, a million things in my life clicked and made sense. The depression that I felt starting from when he first told me made more sense. And and it's from what the way you described, like s sitting at the computer terminal at college and just staring vacantly, it's it almost sounds like you were dissociating, like like you just couldn't be present with this truth trying to claw its way out of your soul. Exactly, that's what it was. 
I think there was a, there was a bigger part of my brain that was trying everything it could to keep the lid on this. Mm. And, uh, this other thing was something, you know, in the deep recesses of my mind woke up the night he told me about it and spent years. I think then we're, we're talking like five years after the, Mm -hmm. the fact that, that he told me five years later before I finally realize it. Um, there were other clues along the way. I started seeing this therapist after the divorce and I told her like what I, you know, I'm going through this divorce, but what I really want to talk about, I think is my brother. I think that's been bothering me for years now. And I haven't had anyone to talk about because the last guy was a freaking narc and he called the cops and, uh, she asked me, how good is your memory? And I said, I have a very good memory actually. And she said, what's the name of your kindergarten teacher? And I said, who knows the name of their kindergarten teacher? No one has memories from kindergarten. And yeah. then she said, Mrs. Wilson, that was my kindergarten Damn teacher. Damn it, Paul! <laughs> and I have a horrible memory. <laughs> She asked me who my first grade teacher's name was, and I was like, uh, I don't know. Sister Helen. Damn it, Paul. She said, who's your second grade teacher? I was like, have we moved a lot in second grade? I think we went to two different schools. I don't remember the name of the the teacher. She said, who's your third grade teacher's name? I said, Mrs. Newell. And then I could, I was listing facts about Mrs. Newell. I was like, Newell's Jewels. It was how, like, the stars of her class were the Newell's Jewels. And my middle name is Jewels. And so I thought that was really special. But the other kids made fun of me and they called me a teacher's pet, blah, blah. Like, I can remember everything. And she doesn't say anything else about it. She just changes the subject and we go on with the rest of the session. And I'm like thinking about it like a week or so later. Why did she ask me that? You know, I think I brought it up with her and she said, well, uh, you know, some people can bury memories. You can just, you can repress them. You can forget them. And so I wondered if I had repressed something. I started asking other people about their childhood memories and I thought it was weird that everyone else could remember stuff that I couldn't. Um, and the other thing too is you can you can tuck them away in a very minima, minimalized folder, where you remember something as innocuous. Hmm. That that's one of the things that happened to me. None of the memories were new, but I suddenly saw them through a different filter. Through a different filter, and my wife then at the time, we're divorced now, but she had been telling me for twenty years. You haven't dealt with this. You are not treating this seriously. What happened to you is serious. And did you just think she was crazy? I thought just she so- just didn't like my mom. Hmm. That's a, there is a, a thing in us that until we accept it, it will be swinging, swinging for the fences. And this like, therapist that I saw, I kept seeing her at, after that, this big realization and she, uh, said lots of good things to me. And one of them was just about like how that's, how that's good. You know, it's like, she was like, be, I was bit, I, I beat myself up. I think we'll go more into this in a second, but I felt really guilty that I was able to move on so well and just forget about it. And my brother remembered 
all this stuff in great detail. And she was, she told me like, that's not a bad thing that your brain is good at surviving. Yeah. Like you're a survivor. You found a way to move on and you did it and you did it as a child. Yeah, and that's it doesn't good. mean you're dumb or clueless. That's just how your brain. I still, I just, I still, I'm, I'm over most of it, but every now and then I, I still like the way that I'm still awkward about talking about it with my brother is, uh, it has to do with that where, uh, I feel like he got the raw deal Mm -hmm. and I felt responsible, especially because it happened to me first and I couldn't help but say like, okay, well, what if I had, instead of just, uh, protecting myself and, and, blocking the memories if i had spoken something out loud mm-hmm. would it have happened to him uh but and and i think that's healthy to blame your five-year-old self oh and, absolutely and, and rid- ridicule it and expect it to be a responsible adult mm-hmm. so my son uh well he was five he just turned six but it was I don't know. I almost said very helpful, but it's almost, it really wasn't that helpful. But I, and, you know, I would uh, be told like, okay, can you imagine getting mad at Ethan? Five, if, if something like this happened to five-year-old Ethan, would you tell him that that was his fault? Would you tell him he should have done something? And the answer is obviously not. No, 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 no. And they're like, well, treat your five-year-old self like you would treat your five-year-old son. And that's where I would go, ah, I, I, I don't love myself as much as I love my son. That's the problem. Like, uh, I, t- I would, I will protect my son and everything. But have you uh, ever talked to a picture of yourself from that age? I haven't talked to a picture of myself, but sounds cheesy. But I've done, I've done some age regression hypnosis. Yeah, and like, uh, gone back and forth where I am. I like, like I was speaking both voices, and mm-hmm. it was actually incredibly helpful it was really nice it was um it was cool i had like i kept it kept coming up like i would read books or see a movie or something they they were talking about age regression hypnosis and i kept getting more and more interested and i did a couple sessions and uh they were really powerful and really really uh helpful healing and it was beautiful i talked there's we called him little aaron and big aaron it was like little aaron do you have something you want to say to big aaron big aaron what do you want to say to little aaron and it was really sweet. Little Aaron is the one that f- was, he played the protector role. And he was like, because I, I wanted, for a long time, I wanted to know exactly what happened. Because I'll, uh, this is why I felt awkward about our last recording, is that I still don't, I don't have all those memories. And they didn't come back. I don't remember her doing it. I just knew that she did. And so then I felt really shitty saying, I know that she did this when I felt like I didn't have any proof, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, not that people believe survivors when they do have proof. So I don't know why, (laughs) but I felt, I felt bad. I felt like I'm co-opting this thing for my brother or real victims, you know, who really, uh, suffer through all these painful memories and I don't have any memories. So maybe I'm just making them up and I couldn't ever escape that. Maybe I'm making it up. So the therapy I was, but it was a feeling you had in your bones that made everything. It was stuff. All these things, all these puzzle pieces went into one of the memories I do have of second grade. As I tried to kill myself, I uh, tried. All second graders do. Yeah, that, that's Aaron. all right. Why do you got to be so dramatic. That's what I, I get. I, that's how I remembered it. it. Was like a funny that's, thing. Like, oh my so, gosh, what a dramatic kid I was. That's so sad. I thought so. 
I, I, in my memory, I was like, well, I wasn't really trying to kill myself because uh, that was a really dumb plan. Like I knew that it, I, I just needed attention, right? But I never yeah, asked other my, ways the kids get attention. I never asked myself to... why did I need attention? Right. Why was I do? Why was I acting out to get attention? I did it in in front of my class. It was like the lights were off. I think we were supposed to be like quiet or something. And I took this uh this. Uh, like glasses, you know, the little string that goes around mm-hmm. the end of your glasses, which I got glasses, by the way, by lying as a way, because I wanted more attention. I lied about my eyesight being bad in class. And then that made my mom take me to the optometrist and I lied in the optometrist. And then they gave me glasses, which made my eyesight worse. And they came in a cool Mario case and they had like a, a string. Anyway, I took that string and I put one end through the other and like I tried to uh, choke myself out in the clo- in the coat closet, you know, that you hang mm-hmm. up your coats in the back. And, uh, you know, the teacher saw me and all the kids saw me and then I had to go talk to a therapist and my parents had to come in and, and whatnot. And I just thought like I barely remember that. I I had completely forgotten it except one day in high school my dad brought it up. And when he brought it up, he I didn't remember it. And he was like, what? And he said, he said you did something in second grade that completely shocked me. And I was like, oh, are you still mad that I lied about those glasses? <laughs> like, <laughs> I felt so bad that I convinced my poor working father to buy me glasses that I didn't need. And I thought that he was still upset about it 10 years later. Oh like, he's God. still so mad. Uh, and he was like, no, not that. And I was like, well, what? What I do that shock you? And he was like, you don't remember? And I said, no. And then I thought about it for the rest of the night, and then it clicked. And me and him didn't – we never even spoke about it out loud. But I think if it wasn't for that night, that memory would be completely lost to me. Still, still, it never came up often. But when it did come up, it came up through a weird filter, which was like I'm embarrassed by it because it was a real dramatic thing that I did. And I don't like being dramatic. But then that night when I collapsed on the floor, uh, suddenly I was like, oh, duh. No wonder that makes sense. Also, the time that I have memories coincides with the time that my brother got molested. And uh, I thought that was significant. More than anything was how I felt around her. Because in those five years after he first came out, I would go through cycles with her where I would feel guilty about how I'd shut her out of my life and how I want nothing to do with her and I'd feel bad and I'd miss her and she would want to see me. She'd want to see her nephew and like want to have us over for dinner and stuff. And uh, I would feel like, yeah, I should do this. Let's do it. And I would be in a good mood and I would be excited to see her again, excited to reestablish some connection. And then I, whenever I was in her presence, I was weird. I wouldn't talk. Like my wife had to carry the conversation the whole night, which is not uh, typical for me. Um, I was te- my shoulders were tense. I hated I hated the sound of her voice. I hated everything. I would just be mad the whole time, which again I was just attributing to my brother. Like, right. 
But uh, as soon as it clicked for me, everything made sense. And I read this book called The Body Keeps the Score. I think maybe you told me about the yeah. first time we recorded. And that clarified a lot of things. Just like the way that your body physically reacts, even when your brain doesn't remember mm -hmm. a, a traumatic incident. But if something is triggering that deep part of your brain that does remember, your whole body reacts to it. And yeah. my body was. I was tense every time I was around her. I was upset. I was agitated. I was quiet. I felt like, and then when I did, sorry if I'm being too frenetic here with the no. storytelling, but when I would do the, these hypnosis sessions, mm -hmm. uh, little Aaron's body posture, when we would try to like f reenact this mm -hmm. or try to see what's behind that door that was so important to me, the I would make fists and my shoulders would get tense and my hands were down at my side and it was like, that's exactly how I feel today when I am around her. And so all these things just made it clear. It still didn't stop me from having doubts for the last couple of years about it and feeling weird talking about it and not knowing what I should say or whatnot. But I think that... Uh, and have you ever uh, spoken to her about it? No, man. That night I collapsed. I said I'm not talking to her. I didn't feel like I owed her anything. Yeah. Um, I saw how she reacted to my brother, how she, uh, for the last time we spoke about it was that, that day that I said, fuck your God, mm -hmm. fuck you. That was the only time she said, it's possible that it happened and I don't remember it. That was the most that she ever said. In the beginning, she just straight up was like, no, that's not true. And she you know, cried about how sad it was that she didn't get to come home for Christmas. And like, mm -hmm. she just like played this innocent victim and I wasn't going to have a conversation with her about it. I wasn't going to tell her anything. I told my parents cause they were there. They, uh, you know, probably wanted some answers for why I was mm -hmm. convulsing on the floor. Uh, so I told them, I am assuming they've told her, but I blocked her on every single platform Yeah, and, uh, never spoke to her again. What do you, <clears throat> think is is going on inside her because i hate to just completely discount someone's humanity but as you're sharing these things it it, it occurs to me well yes yeah, she was a child when this stuff happened but the way that she's handling it today to me is the thing that is the deal breaker about having a relationship yeah. with somebody. And I think that's an important thing yeah. to clarify because there are kids that do things as children. Maybe they're being molested and they turn around and molest somebody else. But if you approach them, you know, when they're an adult and you try to have a conversation and they're not going to give you the platform mm -hmm. to try to heal and express yeah. your truth, that to me is when turning your back on that person is the healthy choice. Right. I'm not a therapist. So I, these are just things. For instance, with, with my mom, she, she would fight me on a story about when I got my teeth fixed. I knew that there's no way she's going to have a conversation with me about these being abused. Mm -hmm. And, so I spared myself that. I just avoided seeing her 
and it's very complicated. I'm not going to go into all of it, but I guess what I'm saying is I under, I understand that, but I think it's also important for us to talk about how do we handle interacting with somebody who has abused us. And the most important thing to me is, is that person listening to you? Are they feeling you? Are they interested at all in your healing? I think you've made a good distinction about like, you don't have to be mad or upset at a person to cut them out of your life. Like, uh, I, in the beginning I was really mad. Uh, I have since found a lot of empathy, sympathy, compassion for her. Uh, I still haven't, brought her back into my life. I have sent her one text where I said, would you ever want to talk about all this stuff? And then she was like, yeah, yeah. When do you want to meet? And I was like, well, calm down. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like in a year, it right. took me this long to just send you this text. Uh, I'm not, I'm just, I'm thinking about it on the horizon because I think for certain she had to have been abused as well. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, every single person that I talk to, and I mean professional person or even just person with experience, when I tell them the story, they say, like, no kid of that age does that unless someone has done it to them. And uh, I believe that. Like, the therapist I was seeing at that time, she told me that straight up off the bat. And I was like, mm, okay. Uh, still, I was I didn't have a lot of space yet for it compassion. Was, it was overtly sexual as opposed to being exploratory curious yeah. children mm -hmm. there's a there's a pretty uh, um uh while there is room in between the two it seems like in most cases it's pretty clear when something is curious innocent children and when something is somebody is passing trauma mm -hmm. on. i still i still even though even with that in mind i was like okay she's a victim too which also just brought up more scary questions I didn't want the answers to, like who did it to her. It was just scary, right? Um, but even with that in mind, I still felt, well, how she's handling it as an adult is really shitty. Right. Uh, but since then, I've changed my thinking. on. I can just – I understand where she's coming from. I think that um, as someone who buried something deep down inside uh, and someone who experienced – all the different defenses your own mind will throw up to keep you from uncovering that secret. I can understand why she would get defensive and play the victim and go, oh, woe is me. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily her choice that she's doing it, but somewhere in her brain she knows that's the this card is the only card we can play that keeps her from uncovering this awful truth. Mm -hmm. So like, or being ostracized and, I mean, yeah. you know, well, I don't then, then, then I have less compassion if you're just worried about right. being ostracized or something because, you know, but if, uh, the way, when I talked to little Aaron, uh, I really wanted to see, I wanted the memory. I wanted to know for certain I wanted something, I wanted to uncover it. And like, we do this visualization with a door, you know, and like, I felt like we got really close. There were certain, like I was, I, I have ideas of where it was and when it happened and got pretty close, but little Aaron just kept stuff hidden. 
and uh, the the professional was like, you know, why don't you just show us? And little Aaron was like, this is my whole fucking job is to keep big Aaron from seeing this. That's like how he's gone on with his life. That's how he's lived. I, I can just uh, bite the bullet here and like, Big Aaron doesn't have to uh, see it, right? And uh, I think that if there's that, if a kid did that to another kid, that kid was probably molested. And uh, you would have to hide the memory of abusing someone else in order to keep the memory of your abuse hidden. And if someone tried to make you remember abusing them, your defenses would go up. Uh, and you would your your instinct for self preservation would be strong enough that you would reject all if you unless you were ready to hear it, which you know she clearly wasn't right. So I'm not as I'm not as mad about about it all. I think that she uh, is probably has a has the same depression that I have that my brother has. I I see a lot of similarities in all of us and how Mm -hmm. I think that we've all, we all kind of underachieve because we're sad a lot of the time. We don't, we're not good at like going to work uh, and holding down jobs because uh, we've got personal things on our mind, you know, things that are holding us back. And I used to like hate, like hate her and, and make fun of her. And now I th- I see her uh, as someone who's probably just trying. She's just trying. And that being said, still not ready to talk to her about yeah, it. Yeah, the, the two Does aren't it, mutually I, exclusive. I don't have to. Right. I don't have to be angry at her, but I also don't have to talk to her, you know. I think one day I will. I think one day it'll be okay. After, shortly after that, the big realization at my parents' house, I was... In Italy, which is where I served my mission, I'd gone back for a trip, and I got a notification that she had liked one of my Instagram posts, and I was like, I didn't even know that she had an Instagram. I would have blocked her. And like, I clicked on her Instagram, and it was full of pictures of my son, like times that I had let her babysit or times that we had gone to her house, and like, mm. she... She loved him and she, you know, people love babies and stuff and they took pictures and posted them. I'm not saying she did anything creepy or whatever. It's just like I saw a lot of pictures of my son and I had another breakdown. I just I just sobbed on a bathroom floor in this hotel and just all night long just cried. And because I I felt all this guilt about like how I had uh, – left my little brother alone in the hands of a predator because I was too weak to have done anything about it. And then just like out of obligation or something, I just let her like have my son because I, I was so worried about protecting my own self, my own memories that, uh, I wouldn't just, I couldn't just allow myself to remember like, Hey, she's not a good person to leave babies with or something, you know? And I just felt, I felt all this guilt, you know? And, uh, there's a lot of like traumatic triggering things when it comes to talking to her that I'm like, I'm not going to get into that. I'm not ready right. for that. I And that's such an important part of healing is listening to your body. 
So many people who've experienced sexual trauma, their body becomes their enemy. And once we begin to heal and accept whatever the truths are, our body can become our friend and that we can listen to it and say, I don't like being in, in the room with this person. And maybe they've not even done anything to wrong me, but there's just something about them that bothers me. And for me, the path to healing has been listening to my body. When I'm tired, take a nap. Don't shame myself for it. You know, things like things like that. But I have found that a lot of people who have experienced physical and sexual abuse, we kind of get this war going with our bodies where we're fighting its instinct. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no. And I think that uh, you don't have to explain it to anyone. And, you know, that was like I, I dealt with doubt and I felt like, oh, maybe I made it up. Maybe, maybe someone else, maybe I did get molested, but it wasn't her. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's wrong if I can't remember or uh, how am I going to explain this to this person? And you just don't have to. Right. Like you don't have to like make a giant announcement. I'm no longer going to be in the room with this person right. if you don't want to. But like you don't have to – you also uh, have autonomy over yourself and like don't have to be anywhere you don't want to be. Yeah. Uh, that was I think the best thing for my brother was that when he finally told the family, he then had his excuse like he never had to uh, see her again. And he took his – what power he did have which was to own his story Mm -hmm. instead of to be the one that has to hide it yeah in his whole life he was forced to just hang live with his abuser hang out with his like i remember when he got his patriarchal blessing which is a thing in mormonism he didn't want uh her to be there he he specifically said like i don't want her to be there and our mom forced him because we all just thought he was just being a dick, mm-hmm. you know? And she's like, this is a family. This is a big thing. We want the family to be there. So the whole family's coming. Right. And, like, uh, he told me, you know, years later how hard that was for him because uh, this is supposed to be a special moment for me. I just wanted to have one memory with that she wasn't in, and mom wouldn't let me do it. Uh, and so when, as soon as he came out and said it, you know, I think his life improved because he was able to just mm-hmm. uh, get distance it's just like to watch how he changed that that week when she moved to that town like he was he had he had made great strides and he was doing better and then to watch him just f- mm-hmm. like freak out because she was in the same town and then like what if i see her at this place what if she moves into the street near mine what if what if what if what if what if what if and it was, his mind just went i haven't been able to go back to chicago in 8 years just i can't bring myself to do it. All even, the murders. Even... <laughs> That's the danger. Well, I'm wanted for all of them. <laughs> but it it's and it and I intellectually understand I'm not going to see her. I don't have to see her, but there's just something about being in the proximity to it that mm-hmm. it's an emotional feeling and it's not an intellectual thing. And I listen to my body and so I don't force myself mm-hmm. to go do it, even though there are relatives there that I would like to would like to see. Um which uh, just, I did like 
I didn't, I stayed away from the person, but I was really interested in places. I had a memory of this house that we lived in and I have very few memories of that time. It was like, you know, first eight years of my life, very few memories. And I had one memory in this, in the first, uh, hypnosis session I did. Mm -hmm. And when I did a show in San Diego, I asked Jessa, the method, you guys, mm -hmm. uh, listeners remember Jessa Reed. I asked Jessa if we could stop in Poway and go to that house. And, uh, like I wanted to dig around and see if something hurt. Like I want, you know, I was mm -hmm. like, I want it. But this is when I was still really focused on having like solid proof. I wanted to have a, I wanted to solve the mystery. Right. And, uh, I went to the house using the first session. They, uh, they did this thing. They're like, you know, they're like, you're going to, I'm going to count to five and you're going to be in a happy memory. Mm -hmm. And I was like in a park in Poway and it was a where's Waldo birthday party. And I was like, Whoa, this is a memory I didn't know I had. And then they were like, all right, now you're going to count to this and you're going to be, uh, like somewhere scary or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was in my neighbor's house in Poway and like I could, I could, I, but I couldn't like turn or see what was, mm -hmm. I was like scared of something behind me, but I didn't know what it was. And so I thought maybe going there will trigger something more. And it didn't this mystery that I was trying to solve in the end, the answer I got was like, you've already solved it, man. Like you, you know it, you knew it back then when you collapsed on your parents' basement floor and you've spent a long time doubting it. Like that was when you solved it and don't try to yeah. do you. You're not going to be able to recover any memories and it won't matter. I don't know any survivor that is satisfied with the number of questions they've had answered. There is no question I want answered more than why, why would you do this? You know, hmm. what were you thinking? What were you getting out of it? You know, but we don't, we don't get to know those. We yeah. don't get to know, but the stuff that I do, that is one thing that like I look forward to having that conversation with her someday. And uh, I guess maybe it's just a fool's hope that I'll be yeah. able to get, but I feel like at least I could, I could shout something at her face, say something about, uh, how this was messed up or how it was wrong, but, uh, it probably won't get anything satisfying and like, like you know, nothing that satisfying out of it. Uh, but, but being nice to ourselves in the meantime, yeah, is, I think is I think the best. I think the best route. Are, uh, cutting toxic people out of our lives. Have you seen the movie Us yet? Mm -mm. Uh, a lot of people read a lot of like classist themes in mm -hmm. in it. You know about class struggle, about wealth, about politics, about like you know how divided America is. I really saw it as a movie about a woman who had repressed a traumatic childhood memory mm. and how that, that memory still haunted her. And like in the, like I said before, the deep recesses of her mind still was there and like it woke up, you know? Mm. And, uh, I've watched it twice already. Uh, and the, the first time I watched it, a friend was telling me about how, uh, he's worried that, he has a repressed memory and like, is it worth digging it up? And my, and I shared my story, which he kind of already knew, but just my story about trying to solve the mystery was that I had been unhappy for most of my life and I was given enough of the puzzle to find out how to be happy. Like 
I I haven't gotten any like concrete memory, concrete evidence, but like I got enough to know to understand why I was depressed. Like I understood why uh, my marriage fell apart. I have then been able to spend a long time trying to. I mean, I my biggest problem I think in my entire life has been my self esteem, self worth, my, mm-hmm. my my own personal problems. Like it all stems from the fact that I feel like I deserve bad things to happen to me. And that all stems from this. So even though I don't have the greatest recollection of it, I was given enough clues that I could start working on it. It's still a progress, but I'm getting a lot better at loving myself. When I got to hold little Aaron, like in, I got to hold little Aaron and I got to thank him and I got to tell him how sorry I was that this happened to him. That was a huge step for me. So even though I wasn't, uh, you know, 100% sure of all the details, it was enough. And so I told this friend, like, you know, focus on those, on those big things, like focus on the feeling loving yourself yeah. and, th- and whatnot. And if you, if your brain is protecting yourself by repressing something, maybe don't tear down those walls, you mm-hmm. know, they'll come down when you're ready, maybe. Uh, but just, uh, focus on, you know, taking care of yourself. Well, what a what a great note to end on, uh, dude. Thanks, thanks so much for coming in and sharing this stuff. I really appreciate it. The the podcast uh, that Aaron does with Jessa is called uh, Mormon in the Meth Head. Um, where can people find you on social media? I think the if you if you want to hear more of me, the best thing you could do is download Mormon in the Meth Head podcast. You can start at the beginning, and uh, it, it, it's it's a journey. And it's start like where we started the podcast is me like still really depressed about being divorced. So you can be like, wow, this guy's came so far. Look at him, you know, but. All right. Thanks, buddy. Great, great chatting with him. And be sure to check out that podcast that, that they do, Mormon and the Meth Head. Today's episode is sponsored by Veridesk, the world's leading standing desk solution, helping professionals maintain a healthy, active lifestyle in the office or at home. Veridesk converts any desk into a standing desk and is designed with durable, best-in-class materials that fit in any environment or workspace. With Veridesk, you can easily go from sitting to standing, increasing your productivity, focus, and collaboration. Veridesk comes with a 30-day risk-free guarantee, and there's no assembly required. They also cover shipping both ways. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up. Veridesk is trusted by 98% of Fortune 500 companies and has over 14,000 five-star reviews from professionals all over the world. Stay focused on what matters with Veridesk. To learn more about Veridesk Standing Desk Solutions, visit veridesk.com slash work elevated. That's V-A-R-I-D-E-S-K dot com slash work elevated. Maximize your productivity at veridesk.com slash work elevated. And as always, we will put the links to the things that we mentioned on the podcast under the show notes for this episode. Today's episode is also sponsored by the audiobook edition of Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered, written and read by Karen Kilgariff, former former guest of the show, and Georgia Hardstark, the voices behind the number one hit podcast, My Favorite Murder. Check it out. They go into their biggest mistakes and fears. They reflect on the events in their lives that shape them into who they are. And most importantly, they they focus on self-advocating and valuing personal safety over being nice or helpful, which uh, if you listen to their show, you'll realize a lot of people 
trying to be polite can, can get you killed, quite frankly. Um, but they delve into their own pasts, true crime stories, and uh, they discuss a lot of stuff, meaningful cultural and societal issues, and they're just awesome. Uh, Megan Mullally calls Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered hilarious, honest, insightful, and clever as hell. And the audiobook includes sections recorded in front of a live audience, plush, plush? It's very, the audience is sitting in velvet seats, plus a special guest appearance by the one and only Paul Giamatti. So, buy the audiobook edition of Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered wherever audiobooks are sold. This is also from the vaults, a an awfulsome moment filled out by Suze. And she writes, I thought I'd share two complimentary stories because awfulsome is best in double doses, right? Number one, when I was 12 years old, my addict father died of an Oxycontin overdose because my mother and I were estranged from him and that side of his family. My grandparents allowed us no part in his funeral proceedings. They did, however let his mentally ill and narcissistic brother write the lengthiest, most grandiose, and incoherent obituary our town's newspaper has ever seen. It both included a full paragraph about me and in, quote, about the author section in which my uncle described himself as a doctor and personal philosopher. He is actually neither of those things, barely having a high school diploma. I cannot even imagine how many people read my father's page-long obituary and laughed their asses off at how ridiculous it was. Several years later, my mother and I were volunteering at our local church, which was serving as a Red Cross medical clinic and temporary shelter for Hurricane Katrina evacuees. To our absolute horror, we discovered that my mentally ill uncle was also there dressed in a lab coat, even monogrammed, impersonating a doctor. He was walking among the refugees, taking blood pressure and who knows what the hell else, totally undetected by the real doctors around him. I will never forget my mother's face as she explained to the head physician about the imposter in our midst. His first response was, I was wondering why he was struggling so much to use the blood pressure cuff. I love a good, awesome moment. Love it. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a non-binary person who refers to themselves as how bad can I possibly be? They identify as pansexual. Uh, They're in their 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I reported it. And another instance, yes, and I never reported it. When I was in kindergarten, probably within the first two months, I was attacked behind a dumpster. I haven't always trusted my memories, but it has never left me, so I chose to treat it as a violent attack. I think the three boys were one to two years older than me. They would lure me behind the dumpster right outside the school doors. I don't know how properly sexual it got, but I do have a vivid memory of being held by the arms while bent over while the third boy punched, kicked, uh, slash whatever between my legs. I tried to tell teachers, but with no proof or adult vocabulary, it was dismissed as me tattling and teasing the boys. I remember the boys' smiles, real predators, as they were made 
to say one nice thing each about me as they knew they could just keep doing this as much as they wanted. Same thing happened when I tried to tell my mother. I used a childish word to try to describe the attack and it became a cute family joke. As my anxiety about going to school got worse, I became labeled oversensitive, hard to handle, and disrespectful of authority. Uh, did I mention this was a Catholic school? I was doomed. I'm a very angry adult, and I try to hide it because I'm afraid I will be the next Eileen Warnos if I let it out. And she was a female serial killer, for those of you that uh, aren't familiar. But it's not just men. I am very afraid of women as well. The women I look to for protection. The adults dropped the ball from the top floor of a skyscraper and has gone through every floor. It's as if I know men are mostly unsafe, so I'm a little less scared, but women will tell me they're on my side, then stab me in the back. I worry I do this to women too. To pile on, not long after the kindergarten incident, I was pinned down in my backyard by a neighbor boy and years later by the also likely abused daughter of family friends. Everyone is scary and a potential sexual abuser, and I respond by being a people pleaser. But my energy is running out, and I am scared the angry me is going to emerge and not only hurt others but give people who hate anyone who isn't cisgender a perfect scapegoat to point at and say, see, these people are nuts. They have also been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, they had parents who were dismissive and abusive and lacked boundaries. Uh, any positive experiences with the abusers? My parents still financially support me, partially. I believe because they are some of the I believe because they are aware of some of the bullshit I went through as a child. And this is what they are capable of doing. I am very good at hanging on to small moments of joy. To wit, I once dan danced a tango in the hallway with my mom while our cat washed. Like, wow, humans are idiots. My dad fostered an intense love of animation in me, and we have amazing memories of going to events. I've gotten to a point where I'm not angry at them, but the disconnect is so very strange sometimes. I think about telling at least my mom about the things I have survived as she is more accessible, but I am less afraid of piling on pain than I am of her under-response. Boy, that is such a true thing. that For people who have gone through traumatic things, it the fear of our vulnerability being rejected or responded to underwhelmingly is so terrifying. Uh, anything less than hysterical crying will be disappointing, so I see no point in hurting myself by setting that disappointment up. Darkest thoughts. Oh, ha, wow. Sex with family members? Being able to age shift so I can go get fucked at an age where I feel sexual and desirable. Having a smoking hot boyfriend who's been lobotomized and is a mindless sex slave. Time traveling and killing the children who attacked me, then killing their family. Kidnapping men who I've heard say homo homophobic things and raping them. Sexually humiliating priests. Darkest secrets. My friends and I once came up with the brilliant plan to pimp me out for weed. The dude wanted a different girl in the group but settled for me. 
Once it was over, of course, he didn't give us any weed. I had no idea how to process this, and I wandered for hours without knowing where I was. I threw some of my things in a river and used a phone booth to call my parents and lied about being raped. There were many hours of awfulness, the worst part being when we went to the house of the friend I had been with and I was suddenly horrified. I brought the police to an area where police can be a worse danger than the people they've been called to see. Eventually, I told someone I lied, except to me, it still didn't feel like lying because I had tried to tell someone about previous sexual assault so many times and no one did anything. Or worse, it became a funny, funny joke. Whenever I hear a woman lying about being raped, I wonder if she just put up with so many events of assault, it didn't seem to matter. That doesn't make it okay by any stretch, but I bet that's one reason why it happens when it does. I have also dehumanized men to a hellish degree, and this is difficult because there is a trend of, quote, male tears and trivializing male pain as a response to the pain of women being trivialized. It's almost encouraged to be shitty to men, whether or not the women who say these things realize it. I will admit it, it is so easy to rape someone. It's not funny or consequence-free just because someone with a vagina did it to someone with a penis. When he told me he felt violated, he did not use the word rape, I almost seemed more distraught than he did. I wish he would have gotten more angry at me. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being a powerfully horny teenage boy and fucking a very pretty androgynous man in the ass so good he's just fucking losing it, screaming and begging and speaking in tongues. These can be separate or together. I am also powerfully, powerfully attracted to cartoons. I can't explain it, but the way they look and move is profoundly sexy to me. If I fantasize about the genitalia I have, I am always a victim and trigger myself. I have to be a boy with a penis fucking another man in my fantasies or they don't work. These are the only ones that feel healthy and productive, even if they have fucked up themes. I feel I can't share anything with anyone because they involve me being in a legal age, and you know how there is an instant jump to real pedophilia if you tell anyone that. I only feel ashamed about them because people would assume I'm attracted to real children. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my mom she needs to take it easier on herself and probably smoke some damn weed, at least some with CBD, to manage her pain better. I would tell my dad that 90% of the things he says have a condescending tone and he needs to check his fucking sexism, even if he thinks he's not being sexist. If my uncle were alive, I'd ask him if he ever molested me with a disclaimer that I'm actually not mad, I just want to know. I would tell the many, many people I've had crushes on that I had crushes on them and make sure there was closure before before all those fun crushes turned into angry, isolated bitterness. What, if anything, you wish for? Sexual health and peace. My libido to return. People I can be honest with who won't get sick of me, who I won't drive away with my weird, crazy bitterness. People who will tell me I'm attractive, and I will believe them and return the favor. For my mom to be able to comfort her fears and get more than three hours of sleep per night. Have you shared these things with others? Sometimes with therapists, but therapy costs money and I have a tendency to feel frustrated and bored in therapy. I kind of cheat myself out of therapy sometimes because I'm people-pleasing, 
kind of reading the therapist and giving the right responses. If it's a man, I'm often wondering slash hoping if he secretly finds me attractive. If it's a woman, I just want to impress her and make her feel like she's done a good job. I either need a perfectly androgynous agender therapist, in parentheses, not impossible, or a toaster with a PhD. A toaster. I have told friends some of these, and while they are sympathetic, I still resent them not responding in some way I can't even describe. It's almost as if I want them to suffer from knowing what happened to me, but I generally believe they forget minutes after I tell them, or that thing happens where you disclose sexual abuse, and because of human nature, they just kind of get aroused. How do you feel after writing these things down? Drained, as I often do, but I didn't cry this time. I didn't have to stop and melt down and come back. I feel strong, though it feels weird to call that strength, and I'm having a hard time owning it. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Oh man, I'm so fucking sorry. I am so goddamn sorry. Jesus fucking hell, I am so sorry. Isn't this just like the fucking worst? Do you ever want to just bathe in blood? Do you ever want to eat feces? Do you want to somehow blow up your elementary school with your genitals in sixth grade? Because I sure did. Please, please don't judge yourself for your thoughts. It's okay. Do what you need to cope. And for God's sake, do not take psychological advice from anyone on Tumblr. They don't know you. They don't care about you. A lot of them have no experience with much of anything and do not have anyone's best interest in mind, no matter what they say. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, man. You went so deep, so deep. And I'm so grateful for those of you that that pour your hearts out into these surveys because it helps the rest of us realize that we're not alone in whatever it is that we're going going through. Uh, Michael Kaur was a, a guest on this podcast about a year ago. Uh, I recorded him when I was in uh, Ireland, in Northern Ireland, and he has started a project. I'm going to read a little bit from it. It's called The Drafts Project. And the way he came up with the idea for it was he was on his computer one day and he, for a second, thought that he had sent all of the drafts out that were in his email folder. And he panicked. And then he realized as he was reading through these drafts, he hadn't sent them out, but he realized how interesting some of these things are. And he is inviting people to submit emails that they've written but have never sent. And it's called the Drafts Project. And if you want to submit one to him, uh, you can email it to him at thedraftsproject at gmail.com. And I'm going to read two This first one is just very short. Uh, This person wrote, Are you threatening me? I should tell you that there's no point in leaving a horse's head on my doorstep and then all in caps because I already have one. I don't even know what that means. I I already have a, a, a horse's head on my doorstep. I know it's a reference from, from the movie The Godfather where, you know, they threaten somebody by putting a severed horse head in their bed. But, um, yeah. And then this one, this one is heavy, but it's, it's so, it's like one of the deepest things I think I've ever read. 
And this person's draft reads, Dad, I'm writing this as I can't say it and I need to get it out. You were everything to me. You were my hero. I would watch you build things. I'd watch you fix things. I'd watch you make things better and I would be in awe. You were a rock, a healer, a warrior, a builder, a craftsman, a carer, a joker. You were everything I wanted to be. And you looked me in the eyes and you fucking lied to me. Deadpan, straight-faced lied. Then you left me, a boy, to deal with his broken, disabled mom and confused, heartbroken little brother. I was fucking 14 and I was not ready to deal with what I went through. You put me through all of that for another woman. I remember the day you left. The day you left me on the drive, I remember the last thing I asked you. Are you coming back? You replied, I don't know, then drove off to the other woman. I had to tell my own disabled mom that you weren't coming back. And I couldn't cry. I couldn't scream. Because I had to look after my mom and little brother who were in bits. I had to be you. I had to be who I thought was you at 14. Eventually, of course, you did come back. I think when you found out social services would take, was taking mom into a home and placing my brother and me with foster parents, you came back out of guilt. I was a responsibility and the guilt of seeing your kids being, being taken into care was too much. Would it be too shameful for you? You came back and tried to patch things all the time, telling us the life with you and the other woman was over. But it wasn't, was it? You were just going through the motions. You didn't really love us. You just didn't want us to be brought into care. I remember finding your body when I was 15. I remember finding the suicide note and having again to become you. I remember prying your froth, frothing mouth open. I remember the tubes in the hospital. I remember thinking, this is it. I'm now really on my own. But you survived. And then you hit the bottle hard. I remember coming home and seeing you fall into the furniture, covered in potpourri, grasping wildly. I remember putting you to bed. I remember finding you on that market stall, kissing that woman so deep in your drunken stupor that you didn't realize it was me talking to you, eyes rolling around wildly, telling me you were going to deck me. I remember that night when you were shouting, and I left, but came back, and we squared up to each other. When I was 16, I remember looking into each other's eyes and thinking, I'm about to fight my dad. I remember a lot of times. I went through it, too. I lost my fucking mom. I watched her fucking wither away. I watched her lose her speech. I watched her lose her sight. I watched her covered in bed sores, shitting the bed, groaning, and making sounds I'll never want to hear ever again for years. Have you ever had to clean your own mother's pus-filled bed sores at 17? Do you know how guilty I felt when she finally passed and I felt relief? I felt like a monster. And I fucking lost you. I lost my hero. But I didn't go on a fucking bender, did I? I didn't lose the fucking plot, did I? No, because I fucking couldn't because I had to be you. You weren't the only one who suffered. Where were you when she died? I had, 
I had to do everything. I had to organize the entire funeral. I even had to call my own brother who was in another country and tell him. I had to meet the people to take her body away. I had to sit with my dead mom's body and wait. Again, I had to be you. Where the fuck were you? And still, I didn't lose the fucking plot. I know I was a fucking burden. I know we made you come back and not have the life you wanted with that woman. When I moved back in with you after university because I had no money and needed somewhere to stay, after three months, when you asked me to move out so you could move in the son of the fucking woman you left us for, I knew I'd just been a burden all this time. Is he our stepbrother? Why didn't you love me? Why was I not good enough? I fucking needed you so much. Why weren't we good enough? Why did you lie and cheat so much? You could have been my hero. You could have been her hero. I can't say any of this to you, can I? I again can't express my feelings. I again have to suck it up and sink it deep because if you knew you'd go on another pity-fueled alcoholic bender, I again have to be you. I fucking hate you and I love you. Wow. Again, the, the email if you want to submit any of your unsent drafts, send them to Michael Core, uh, and his email address is the drafts project at gmail.com. And I'll put the link to that on the, on the show notes for this website. Many, many thanks to, to Michael for giving me permission to, to read these. And then finally, this is another awfulsome moment from, from the vault. And this one is filled out by a guy who calls himself Chris from the boondocks of Virginia. And he writes, Unfortunately for myself and my anus, I had to undergo a humiliating surgery called a sphincterectomy. No, I'm not making any of this up. I was experiencing rectal bleeding. My anal sphincter was simply too tight. So anyway, I'm in stirrups in a surgical room, hating my existence, preparing for a doctor to lay into my throbbing rosebud with a scalpel when one of the nurses says to me, Hey, aren't you Chris? I look at her and I recognize her as this chick that used to ride the school bus with me years earlier when we were kids. I do a quick mental checklist of my situation, me being prepared for asshole surgery, my small, scared wiener exposed, the fact that she was preparing to shave the taint area around my frightened rosebud. After contemplating the situation for three quarters of a nanosecond, I say, no, I'm Tim. You see, I have a twin brother, so I thought throwing him under the asshole surgery bus was the logical thing to do. She says while starting to shave me, oh, okay, your chart says otherwise. God damn it. So fucking good. So good. I hope you enjoyed to, uh, today's ep- two days. I hope you enjoyed two days episode. Godspeed. Uh, I, I, I hope you got something out of it. And uh, if you're out there and you're struggling, just never, never forget that you're not alone. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.